Welcome to PX22. My name is Jess Noonan and I'm joined by my colleague Peter Jewell. Hello listeners. This is the last podcast for 2016. It's been a fantastic year for us with eight podcasts released over the course of the year. We've had the pleasure of talking with Shelley Penn, Joe Garrity, Chris Goss, Brian Haratsis, Dave Song, Dan Bowden, Nick Tweedy, John Henschel and today Johnny Barnab, who we'll get to know shortly. We just want to take this opportunity to thank all of our listeners means the world to us that we've developed such a fantastic following of listeners from across Australia as well as abroad. We try to keep our content relevant to both local and international listeners. If you have any feedback, we'd love to hear it. Maybe you have some great subject ideas or you think our recordings are too short, too long, or perhaps I laugh too loudly. Anything at all. Please drop us an email on planningexchange at gmail.com or visit our website for further contact details. You can also leave us a review on iTunes as this will help bump us up in the iTunes podcast list so that we can reach more people who might be interested in urban planning related podcasts. Of course, we also need to give a special shout out to our amazing sponsors who make all of this possible. First of all, Maddox Lawyers. The Maddox Planning and Environment Group are the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. They specialise in providing tailored strategic advice that recognises the unique circumstances of the client. If you need a compelling advocate for VCAT, planning panels, advisory committees or higher courts, Maddox have you covered. Special thank you also to Song Bowden Planning, Victorian Planning Reports and Salt Traffic and Waste Engineering who also support Planning Exchange and who we absolutely adore working with. Now, apologies for the lengthy intro, time to get into it. Today we're talking with Johnny Barnard. Hi Johnny. Hi Jess. Johnny works with ID Consulting who are population experts. Essentially, ID combines their in-depth knowledge of people and places with interactive web apps to help organisations organizations decide where and when to locate their services to meet changing demands. If you, like me, get secret enjoyment out of analysing census data, you'll love hearing Johnny speak. Johnny is an urban planner, a population forecaster and spatial consultant. He's been forecasting and, and mapping Australia's urban changes since the late 80s. Welcome, Johnny. Pleasure to be here. Now, <clears throat> Johnny, you're an urban observer. Can you explain this description or role? That's always good to have these self-appointed terms, isn't it? Yeah. It helps us. We were, we were, when we started sort of uh, ramping up our, our blog, um, we thought we'd sort of uh, adopt um, a little bit of a catch cry for each of us. So I just thought um, for me it was about, I guess, being a, a sort of a kid who loved looking at Melways stuff like that, watching urban change. I suppose um, when you get into the planning profession, you you um, you sort of come across other strange people who grew up looking at mailways and stuff like that. Um, and, and, Johnny, I've noticed you in social social scenes. The first thing you ask people is where they were born and where they went to school. Is this work taking over your social life? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, yeah, it has sort of irritated my, uh, my wife on occasion, but... Look, a bit of a vox pop, mm. I suppose. Um, it's all about, I guess, sort of when you look at so much data around uh, people's locational decision-making, where they move, um, where they buy houses, where they rent, uh, all of that sort of stuff, you sort of see definite patterns uh, within cities and so on. It's always good to sort of uh, test out. And occasionally you do come across someone who um, you know, doesn't quite fit, fit the whole bill. So you pigeonhole people, essentially. <laughs> well, I mean, I pigeonhole myself, I guess. Well, to a, to, a, to a certain extent, yes, that's probably true. 
Um, but yeah, you, you do come across people like myself. I actually moved across town as well, so I probably um, have broken that mold that we see in a lot of our certainly our migration statistics. Now, can you give us a little bit of a background? So you started at the Department of Planning, then you went backpacking, and then you moved to Sydney. I did, yeah. I did uh, planning at RMIT uh, in the uh, in the mid late eighties. Uh, then started my work career. Did work experience initially, then started at uh, the planning department. It had five different names in the five years that I was there. So I started working what was then known as the uh, the MSCS, the Metropolitan Services Coordination System, uh, and that was sort of all about the the, the sort of vibe in the late eighties was about. Uh, aligning infrastructure spending to where urban development was. It was sort of felt that um, development was sort of happening higgledy-piggledy and uh, that we needed to be to get on top of it. So then, uh, yeah, backpacking for a year, as, as you do, everyone sort of does in their 20s, uh, and then moved to Sydney. Now, skipping forward, Johnny, I understand that you, you, you got all your money together, bought a $6,000 computer and went and moved into Ivan's bedroom to start working. I did, yes. Who started your company and you, <laughs> you both worked out of his bedroom for a while. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Well, I, I did my council stint in Sydney, so three and a half years. So that was my time when I was a strategic planner. So it gives you a bit of a credibility when you're talking mm. to uh, to planners. Out there. I was one of you once. Mm. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's right. We I, I moved down back to Melbourne. Uh, Ivan Motley, who I'd worked with at the planning department, had kicked off ID and uh, we started off in his uh, his house in Fitzroy and – I spent about two weeks in his second room, uh, second bedroom. Um, uh, by then, I'd, I'd got sort of jack of commuting. I said, "I'm going to work from home," and we're getting an office, mate. So we're we're off. You're to, getting a bit too close, yeah. Yep. We're off to uh, off to Fitzroy Street, St Kilda, in a uh, an office that we we shared with an advertising company. So that was an interesting few years. And you're still working together. That's great. <laughs> we are, yeah. Although Ivan's uh, headed up to to Byron Bay, so but, yeah, uh, left left the rest of us behind. <laughs> in uh, in Collingwood, so yep, still going. So, can you describe the type of work you do to our listeners? What is its value? Yep, in the in the greater scheme of things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, ID stands for informed decisions. So, I mean, that's the nub of it, I suppose. We're, we're providing uh, enough information to enable clients to to better make decisions about allocating resources, um, better planning decisions. Um, and particularly trying to foster an understanding of place as mm. well. So for us, it, it's not it's not here's a big pile of numbers. It's about let's actually talk to you about this place that you're making decisions about and help you understand why it behaves like it does and, and how it might change in the future. So it, about building understandings probably of these demographic issues. Mm. You've got some great resources on your website where you basically type in the area that you're wanting to look at and it spits out this amazing summary of, you know, these are the types of um, uh, age groups and the backgrounds of all the different people that live there. It's fantastic. It's so useful in everyday work life. Mm, yeah, mm. well, we um, clients or, or councils basically pay for that sort of online profile, census profile mm. package, but around 75% of the visitors to those ages are people from outside the council. So yeah. students, you know, um, business, um, other planning consultants as well. <laughs> um, so it, it really is a sort of community product in that sense. What, what we'll do, Johnny, is put your website on our, on our website so people can have a look at that. 
When you started out, what were the analytical tools like and what are they like now? Uh, well, they were quite scant, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I remember we were sort of on the cusp of IT really kicking off in the sort of work we were doing, particularly in the planning department. Uh, the, the amount of IT sort of study we did was negligible during the course. I think we did multi-plan, I think was the, <laughs> the, um, the, the spreadsheet package and WordStar and that sort of stuff. Uh, then we got to the department. I remember um, working on a, a machine with a 20-meg hard drive, um, <laughs> you know, using um, Word for DOS with uh, different coloured letters to tell you whether it was underlined or any of that sort of stuff. Uh, and we had we were starting to get into sort of quite rudimentary um, mapping products as well. But the problem at that time is we didn't have any base information. So we were actually printing out these maps. We'd captured these lovely polygons uh, of land release areas on the fringe of Melbourne, uh, but we had no roads or cadaster or anything like that to overlay them on, and we were printing them on butter paper and sort of <laughs> sitting them over sitting them over paper. So that's yeah. I mean that was sort of where we're at. Um, right. that, today, um, well, there's just an enormous amount of power in modern computing. So the sort of population forecasting models we're running in the office uh, and that sort of stuff, we're in, we're in a sort of iteration of that at the moment, um, is an incredible amount of, of, of work, but you can harness all the PCs in the office and get them mm. to do it. You probably would have needed you know, a, a factory worth of sort of mainframes to do the same sort of job. Uh, 20 years ago. So, I mean, that's a big difference for us. It means you can actually run some serious uh, models that you just couldn't have done probably outside of, you know, government and universities and so on 20 years ago. So. Let's talk a little bit about forecasts. What's the most common fault you find in demographic forecasting? Jeez, it's a tough job being a forecaster, <laughs> having a go at it. Um, look, I think forecasts probably need to be seen. They're, they're a product of the time and place that they're produced. Now, Johnny, just to clarify, yes, I thought the, <laughs> I thought you didn't make forecasts. I thought you made projections. No, no, the other way around. Oh, we'd sorry. like, we'd, we'd like <laughs> a projection. We, you, you sort of you, you've got your ruler out. You, you're joining the oh, the dots, and forecasts imply that you've you've sort of thought a little bit more about your assumptions that are uh, that are going in behind it, rather than a mathematical. Sort Think of about it to. as weather, you know, it can change. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, yeah, I won't go into comparisons between <laughs> weather and, and population forecasting. But, uh, oh, look, the, the main issues are probably, look, some of the top-down issues are just really the big, when I say top-down, I mean if you're doing state and territory in Australia forecasts, uh, you're dealing with assumptions about things like overseas migration and, and no one you know, would have foreseen the huge increases in net overseas migration we've had um, particularly in the last 10 years or so, upswings in fertility. Fertility rates have been going down for, you know, 20 or 30 years and suddenly sprang back up again. Those sorts of things are pretty hard um, to sort of get in, in, you know, sort of big picture forecasting side of things. At the smaller area level, I mean, I, I guess one of the things you've got to be careful of is just agendas in terms of the assumption making around forecasts. So we, we, we try to be as, you know... Um, um, well, sorry, not not value free, but we, we try we try to uh, be as impartial as possible. But there's always it, that possibility. It reminds me of the old Latin expression "nullius in verba." Yes, trust, trust no one. <laughs> it doesn't mean trust us. No, it no, 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 trust no words or something like that. Yes. Well, I think you've got to have a healthy level of scepticism about a lot of things. But 
uh, I guess one of the principles of our forecasting, especially at the um, at the small area level, is to be as transparent as possible about the assumptions. So we list all of our development assumptions. You can go, gee, well, that residential estate hasn't started yet or that apartment tower hasn't been built, and at least you've got a little bit of background knowledge to, to sort of say, well, those forecasts might be a little bit high based on those particular assumptions. So, uh, But yeah, we're always wary of forecasts, I guess, that are, that are trying to to push a barrow or probably more influenced by policy, I guess, than than what you would ideally like. Let the data fit the story, not the other way. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I mean, we well, we, we we often have sort of not so much battles but healthy discussions with our clients about what we, sh- we should be assuming in terms of development rates. Mm-hmm. You have councils that are very um, uh, sort of bullish, I guess, about their, their prospects. Um, you have councils going the other way as well, to be honest. In, in this day and age, we don't want any... Development. We're elected not to have development. Don't assume hardly anything in your forecast. So it goes. It goes both ways. This is ethical dilemmas for a demographer. Hmm? Uh, well, or professional ethics. It is. Yeah. All, all we can sort of do is, is just, as I said, try as be as transparent as possible with what our assumptions are around this, this sort of information. What has surprised you over the last, say, 10, 20 years in terms of population growth across Melbourne? Or, or New South Wales. I know you do a bit of work up there as well. Yeah, we do. We do forecasts all across Australia and, and New Zealand as well. Um, I, I probably know Melbourne and Sydney better than most. Oh, look, just the overall level mm. of growth has just been quite quite phenomenal, particularly when you look back at the at the sort of where Victoria was at, particularly in the early 90s sort of economically and, and, and growth-wise to see what's happening now, um, particularly in terms of, Things like interstate migration as well. Like Victoria mm. was losing thirty odd thousand people a year to other states in the early nineties, and mm. now it's the most recent numbers like plus ten, fifteen thousand people. Did you so. see that in your crystal ball back in the late eighties? No, you wouldn't. <laughs> These are the sorts of things that are really, yeah. really yeah. tough to pick. Very up. hard. I was over in WA at that early time, and the joke over there was, "What's the capital of Victoria?" Three dollars. One dollar. One dollar. <laughs> 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 overstated it, yeah. But that, yeah, absolutely. I mean, those things, um, you know, as I said, and if you go back even, often we would look at a forecast that might have been done in the 60s and occasionally that gets, say, you know, the year 2010 better than the 1990s does. So mm. it, it's very much about how you perceive the sort of economic situation of your place at that time as well. And certainly in Australia we've, um, although obviously in the last quarter or so our um, economy's gone backwards, but we've had a long period of growth. And people, just, there's almost a generation of people who have just grown up with economic growth and they just assume these things are going to keep rolling out. There's an assumption out there that sort of um, the rest of the world is just sort of madly banging on the door and wanting to come into Australia. And, you know, that's not necessarily the case in terms of overseas migrant. Those levels of overseas migration are very much related to the uh, economic performance of the country. Do you think as well that um, building form can dictate population change? Uh, or is it the other way around? It goes both ways, Yeah, I guess. Um, building form in terms of residential development, and you're obviously pretty limited in the inner city because you've got to go high to, to, to sort of fit people in. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, I mean, it's... I think one of the interesting things in terms of urban form has been probably in particularly in the case of Melbourne is the the, the growth of the the west 
and the uh, the footprint of Melbourne growing, and obviously that's where that population growth has had the most significant impact on built form. Now, Johnny, how responsive are planning policies and, and controls to updating demographic projections? You know, what's the feed? What's the okay? Here's some new data in. How responsive are policies and decision makers to that to that sort of input? Uh, well, I suppose planning doesn't. There's always a bit of a chicken and egg thing going on with, with planning policies uh, and population forecasts in the sense that if your planning policy allows higher density forms then and we make the assumption that there is demand to construct those higher density forms then we will assume that population will go into those sort of areas. I think generally planners are pretty good with some of those bigger picture things in terms of understanding that we probably need a greater variety of, of dwelling types to, to cater for different household types particularly in outer and in uh, and fringe areas, so I think in that on that bigger picture thing, they're pretty good. One thing they may not necessarily get right is possibly encouraging different dwelling types in areas that may well, not necessarily well, gonna, be demand. I was going to ask that. I mean, when you look at suburbs, <clears throat> sometimes it's like a assume there's a monoculture out there, but there's not. We live in a very diverse society, even in say the outer suburbs where everyone thinks there's two point three children in every household. Yeah, there is a lot more diversity than we than we allow for. Would you say? Oh, absolutely, and certainly having worked in Western Sydney, and and a lot of certainly in the case of Sydney, it, you know, decision makers and the media are all based in the eastern half of the city. So there's a lot of people never go to Western Sydney. So there's a real perception about there, and a perception about these suburban areas that everyone wants to move to areas closer to town, mm. and so on. If he's they obviously could, a, he's obviously a Trump supporter, Jess. <laughs> so. so, so, so should the planning policies allow a bit more for that diversity that we've got in that the mix, do you think? Oh, I think that, yeah, absolutely. I think one of the tricks, though, is just that basic economic issue. I suppose if you're trying to um, uh, develop, say, high-density forms in fringe areas. Or even mid-rise density. Or even mid-rise density, it's tough to compete with, with some of the, with the fringe estates that are getting rolled out. Um, you kind of need that scarcity of other forms to sort of make demand for the higher density forms greater. But I think generally speaking, planners are trying to do the right thing to address those sorts of changes. Now I'm going to ask you to grab your crystal ball again. <laughs> <laughs> Based on the present stats and trends, what can you see into the future? Can you describe our cities of tomorrow? Is it going to be more of the same or do you see something different? I think generally, sadly. Mm. Yeah, I'll look... I, I do have some issues around how Melbourne and Sydney in particular are going to deal with being cities of eight, nine, ten million people. Mm. And that's sort of where we're heading at some point, probably not in my lifetime. But I think we're, we're getting to the point where we need to really rethink transport. We're, sort of, we're getting to the point where we're going to have to go underground railways in a serious way to sort of deal with some of the, the densities that will be required to deal with, with, the, with growth you know, to get to that eight or nine million people. So looking into this, the, you know, as you, in your sage form, <laughs> um, you, you know, you see these trends developing. Are those the sort of things that worry you about the future? Yeah, absolutely. And the, yeah. sort of the, the distant suburbs with not many, servi- not many services, lack of jobs, high commute times? Yeah, or? there's a real issue with, um, generally speaking, the most high, the, you're getting agglomeration of higher paying jobs in central areas, particularly in Melbourne CBD and Sydney CBD. So there is a real risk that people on the fringe are just not going to have 
great access to the to those higher paying jobs the way things are going and it's all very well to sit here and have point out problems but i mean i don't know I think what it's, necessarily is useful to point yeah. out the problems i mean but I, I think you've got particularly um, the suburbs basically just are not producing as many jobs as they are what resident about the workers. sort of the second city concept you know with sydney they've got Parramatta developing now as their second city what do you think about that is that something that's working I think it is working. I think mm. Parramatta is a great success story and probably to a certain extent um, Chatswood as well in Sydney. But, but Parramatta is there you know, mainly, a, it's a reflection of the, the built form of Sydney and the fact that the CBD is so far away from the centre of its urban footprint where Parramatta is somewhere near the middle. Um, a bit more difficult to, to achieve given Melbourne's footprint. I mean, but uh, on the flip side, Johnny, that with the new technologies we're getting, you know, with the printing, 3D printing and computer powers, what about the case for, you know, 20 smaller parameters, not consolidating everything in the, you know, one or two or three or four spots, but have like 50 smaller centres? I think look, if you go down that path, you're probably just not going to get those higher paying jobs and not certainly the jobs that are coming out of the new economy in a sense. And in a lot of ways we sort of do this. We have suburban mm. activity centres that have got the shopping centre, they've got the hospital, they've got the school. Uh, and those sorts of jobs are going to be obviously continue to be created in the suburbs. They're sorts of jobs that are created, they're created out of necessity because you've got population there and they're created to, to serve that population. But the sort of uh, the higher level jobs in the sort of services economy that we, we're, we're seeing and we're going to continue to see. Which is generally lower paying, yeah. Um, well, the, 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 those higher level jobs are just going to be well, they're already agglomerating in, in inner urban areas. So, um, and that's you know, a, a real problem in future, and particularly when you overlay the, the population growth you're going to get and the um, uh, you know, congestion and ability to access central areas. Can you talk, you know, looking forward, what black swan events can you see? And maybe you just explain to our yeah, listeners. What's a black swan event? Well, <laughs> that's a very European approach, Peter. Well, the I, I, I call them white swans. Well, I'm just assuming <laughs> that swans are black and the white ones are the weird ones. I'm an Australian. So. Well, <laughs> it, it comes from that when the British went to WA, they saw black swans. No one had ever seen a black swan. So it's like this very unusual thing that you can never, you can't envisage in your current construct. Well, that makes it hard to come up with one, doesn't it? <laughs> if we can't envisage it. Sorry. Oh, look, in terms of pop, oh, look, in terms of um, population forecasting at a national and state level, obviously it's you know, nasty things like pandemics and um, you know major wars and so on. Um, you know, meaning there's enormous amounts of refugees and people coming to our door, doorstep. Those sorts of things, I guess. Um, we, we certainly have had questions in the poll. We had someone ask us once, did you factor in SARS into your forecast? So there are some, <laughs> there are some people around who occasionally consider these sorts of things. But, um, yeah, over and above those sorts of events, a bit, a bit hard, yes. And what have been the disappointments in your field? Um, have you found the use of GIS as it's evolved? Stuff, stuff that over-promises and under-delivers. Yeah, I'd... GIS is an interesting one. I think I actually went and studied a GIS um, grad dip, and now certainly where I work, it's just like using Microsoft Word. So mm. it feels a bit odd actually having a, a degree <laughs> in it. But I did learn a bit about map projections, I suppose. 
Um, yeah, I think I think getting a bit overexcited about any technology is a bit a bit concerning. I, I, I get my disappointment's probably more in um, probably the lack of sort of, and it's not by no means all planners. We do have fine planners often have a lack of enthusiasm for the sort of work that we're doing, getting involved in the forecasting process and, and sort planners of understanding. I love this stuff. Yeah, well, <laughs> you're, you're very much the exception. It tends to be sort of um, community services yeah. planners, people who actually are making decisions about age groups they need to invest in and so on. They get mm. more excited about it and the planners, okay, well, we'll give you some development information but we're not going to get but That sort of stuff disappoints me. A little bit, and I think part of that's probably there's just so much movement of personnel from council to council as well that they probably just don't have that understanding of place. But Johnny, the projections from ten years ago were you know, could be said to be wider than Mark. Why should we have confidence in today's projections? Oh, look, if they're ours, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now that's a good question. Um, I think I think you just have to understand what the assumptions are. Behind any set of forecasts, mm. really, mm. Um, they were wider the mark, you know, ten or fifteen years ago because of things like fertility and um, overseas migration and and within Australia, you know, mining booms and mining collapses and all that sort of stuff. That's that's pretty hard to predict. But I, it certainly, as we said earlier, it certainly pays to be sceptical and to understand, you know, what goes into the forecast and what's underpinning it. Now, the 2016 census was very, very contentious this year <laughs> with a lot of issues was, with yes. the, the online yep. um, component and everyone had something to say about it. Um, do you think the census should continue in its traditional form? What alternatives exist? Well, yeah, it was certainly interesting. I, um, I, I think they, they probably mucked it up a little bit because they sent out the letter saying, you know, you need to get online and fill it out that night, whereas traditionally you got your form, you know, a week before and you filled mm. it in at some time over that week about what you're doing on census night. So um, I actually had decided to fill it in the night, <laughs> the day <laughs> after the census and avoid all that sort of mm. stuff. Um, you know, my concern generally with all of that was that the potential for people to lose confidence in the census I think is great. I mean, I think, I think the census is just the... The goose that lays the golden egg, really, for the mm. for the ABS, should it continue? Absolutely. In what form? Um, I think they probably need to keep going down the online stuff. They probably need to review some of the questions mm. that are in it. But you just can't get that richness of data, that local area data, and you can't get. And, and in terms of cost for the census, it's a tiny cost if you consider its potential to to bring efficiencies to decision-making and allocation of resources. Is there anything we can learn from other countries? Uh, possibly. I'm not <laughs> <laughs> um, I must admit I, I'm not au fait with uh, other countries' censuses. I know that yeah, most countries have 10-year censuses. Well, <clears throat> well you, you would know, Johnny, that um, the, Ro <laughs> the Romans had a census and that's why baby Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That is quite correct. Because yes. Joseph had to uh, return to his home. He did. That is correct. Yes, hmm. we should we should write a Christmas blog about that. You've you just given us an idea. <laughs> but, Thank you. So let's let's talk about ID consulting. Yep. Does, does the company like have a company motto like Google, which Google's is "Do No Evil"? Have you got one? Have they the still got that logo? <laughs> are, they, are they keeping a straight face? Are they while using that logo? Uh, well, we don't have a we don't have a catchy motto like that. You can that. make one no. up now if you want. No, well, no, we do have a mission <laughs> statement, which is. Look, I can't remember it verbatim, but it's generally about you know um, 
encouraging good planning oh and, and all of that. <laughs> Look, good decision-making and the good society I think, by, I think Jess you know, and I can work out one for you pretty quickly. All of that sort of stuff. <laughs> we'll get back to you. Yeah, yeah. excellent. <laughs> How can what you do be made more usable to practitioners, do you think, or...? Uh, we like to think it's pretty usable okay. already. We, we Pretty early on in the process, our first sort of census profiles were in um, were Excel files and PDFs and stuff like that. Um, we sort of jumped onto the web pretty early on as a way of getting information out there and to sort of, as I said before, 75% of users now are not from the council who's the mm. client who's paying for it. So, Do you have an um, app? Uh, I think we're working on one. Oh. Yeah. As far and as and do you write up commentary on the on the data? Uh, we do, mm-hmm. yes. Yep. We, we write a lot of blogs. Um, we have sort of basic text. It's hard to get to. In the past, we've sort of written texts about um, changes in census data and sort of made some assumptions that may not necessarily be true. So we've, we've pared it back a little bit. It's a bit more descriptive. Well, well Bernard so Saltz. You know, written numerous books on democracy. Oh, you're talking changes. about that sort of stuff. So, so when when's your book coming out? Uh, well, we do we do hear comparisons with uh, with Bernard quite a bit. Um, he he is known as the rock star demographer around uh, around our <laughs> office. No, I think I think it's great what Bernard has done in terms of raising awareness of demographic issues and all of this sort of stuff. So you do get a lot more people talking about it um, and interested in census data in particular. So from our perspective. Fabulous. Well, he's smashed avocado. Smashed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Everyone's talking about that. It is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I must admit, I've never had smashed avocado. I'm going to have to. Oh, Johnny, you're missing out. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> now, have you travelled to pretty much every Australian town and city? Uh, I did check that recently. I I think Toowoomba was the largest city that I hadn't. Ooh. Been to so if there's anyone listening from Toowoomba, look out. We're on our, on our way. Do you, do you have a spreadsheet that just keeps a log of every single town? I don't. Yeah, to? no, I'm not that bad. <laughs> I have heard of people doing that, but no, not not quite that bad. <laughs> or you know, one of yeah. those maps in the office with a, a pin uh, in every <clears> single. If you town check the back of his city. car, he's got all the stickers. All the stickers. <laughs> yeah. well, what do you most notice when visiting a place? Uh, I must admit, I, I'm, I'm always looking at suburbs and and. Making probably a whole lot of value judgments. I yeah. think maybe but, about but what, where, where, the, where they're going, where they're going economically. Um, if they've got prob- a good bakery or not. Yeah, I oh, look. <laughs> that's true. That's probably more for country towns, I guess. <laughs> uh, suburbs. Yeah, you go there and you sort of um, you get a feel for the sort of people that live there. In, in in my mind, we work with a lot of migration profiles, so we look at what age groups are moving into and out of each area. So you immediately form a view about what sort of role and function mm. um, that suburb has. And if it's not in Melbourne, occasionally you'll go, oh, it's one of those sort of suburbs. It's a bit like X. Mm. Um, in terms of economic life outcomes, are we tied to the postcode or SDA in which we grew up and also our parent status? Um, does, you know, does demographic and social profiling work? Uh, mm-hmm. Well... Yes and no. And I think there's probably a bit more social mobility in the last 20 or 30 years than there has been before that, which probably goes back to greater access to tertiary education and so on. So there's such a a far higher proportion of the community now with tertiary qualifications. It's quite different in that sense in terms of social mobility. I think there's probably still real problems with an underclass that don't have the qualifications because the economy is shedding jobs that need um, that don't have university qualification or don't need well, don't need skills, low skilled jobs, 
and we're gaining jobs in you know jobs that uh, need university qualifications. So th there are real issues around that. And what are you currently reading, watching, or listening that inspires you? How do you relax outside of work? <laughs> Maybe I'm not doing much relaxing at the moment. Nothing springs to mind. Uh, look, I, I probably do just um, stuff that's not dissimilar to um, to what I do for work. Like I, you know, I'm a bit of a local history buff and family history buff, and you know, I've had like, family tree all mapped out. Family tree, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Well, you've got you know your Google Street View and so on. So sometimes I just get obsessed. <laughs> I get obsessed because I track down like houses that ancestors lived in. I wonder, oh, wow. if, wonder if that house is still there and going to Street Johnny, you and all that sort of stuff. I, I know you're That's a fascinating amazing. guy to have a beer with at the pub, but I didn't know this side of you. So yes. we're going to have such fun. Absolutely. <laughs> well, listeners, we've enjoyed uh, the pleasure of Johnny Barnard today for our last podcast for the year. Um, it's been a great uh, second second year for us. Uh, thanks, Johnny, uh, for making the time and thanks again, Jess. Absolute Thank pleasure. You.